All right, I can do this. I can juggle this microphone while I do this. So we're continuing in our series on the knowledge of the holy, and if you're not in a life group, then please contact the office. We'll get you into a life group. We're going through Tozer's book, which is sort of a meditative um, account of or a meditative reflection on the uh, attributes of God. And last week we did the Trinity, and it's important that we focus on the excellency and the transcendence and the glory of God for um, our faith and for our walk and for our understanding of the gospel and our salvation. And uh, so it's not just academic. It's not just theoretical. It's important to how we live as disciples. And this morning we're looking at self-existence and self-sufficiency of God. And I'm combining them together, the two chapters, because I have to for time. But um, for instruction, they serve similar purposes. God needs no other thing to exist himself, nor to create anything else that exists. God has been for all time and created everything out of nothing, we see in Psalm 33 and Romans 4. And as an extension of his self-existence, God is entirely self-sufficient. He needs nothing, Job 41 and Romans 11. God needs nothing from creation in general, and God needs nothing from us specifically. God did not make the universe because he was bored. He enjoyed perfect fellowship with the Son and the Holy Spirit, as we learned last week. God did not make us because he needed to be loved by someone. He was already loved and was expressing love perfectly with the Son and the Spirit for eternity. God does not need us to be glorified or satisfied or worshipped or sustained or entertained or any such thing. And so any notion of God being dependent on creation or on us is in error. Because God, being God, is transcendent. He's wholly apart from our universe because he created it. He's totally independent and self-sufficient from our service because he lacks nothing. If God was deficient in anything, then he would be less than God. This is who God is. And that reality of God is both glorifying and terrifying at the exact same moment. These attributes of God can cause us to rejoice and at the same time despair. God is God. He's excellent, supreme, transcendent, self-existent, perfect and complete. Without us, we can rejoice in the magnificence of that God. On the other hand, God does not need us. We cannot add anything to him. We have no offering that we can give him, no ground on which he should accept us. Where is our hope before such a God? But it's exactly both of these realities that we want to look at today that describe why it is even possible we can have hope in this God. I hope what we see from scripture today is that God must be both self-existent and self-sufficient or we would have no gospel. And no confidence in our salvation. And so these attributes of God are not just something interesting about him or something that makes him God. They are deeply and profoundly important to us for our salvation, for the way in which we live with confidence in his kingdom day by day and year by year and decade by decade and century by century into eternity. And so we're looking today at the self-existence and the self-sufficiency of God as one attribute today. Let me just pray before we get into God's word and and, and understand and and try to hear from scripture why this is important to us uh, and deeply important to what, who God is and why the Christian faith is what the Christian faith is. Let's pray. Father God, we just give you thanks this morning for your word. Thank you that we get to open it uh, weekly, daily, 
more than once a day and seek wisdom and seek truth from it and be satisfied by it, that it is the very bread by which we live. And, Father, that it points to you, it points to your Son, and by your Holy Spirit it fills our hearts and our minds with the things that we need to know about you, to know about ourselves, and to be in right relationship with you. We pray for your Holy Spirit's opening our eyes and lifting the veil from our minds this morning. In Christ's name, amen. So first of all, I'm going to cover very quickly self-existence because I really want to move into, as I said, self-sufficiency, which kind of follows from self-existence. And uh, I confess I forgot it was communion, and so I'm going to sketch in some background information here and sketch in some context and not go quite as deep as I was going to um, so that we do have time to not rush communion because we definitely don't want to do that. But we also don't want to rush the Word of God, so I'm in a conundrum here. Um, <laughs> but we will, we will do well by the Holy Spirit. Uh, so self-existent. As with the Trinity last week, there's even less disagreement and equal mystery to the acknowledgement that God existed in a state of eternity prior to creation and will exist into eternity future. He's the creator and uncreated. He came before and is without end, and that just is who God is. And we can't imagine an effect without a cause. We can't imagine a being without a beginning, but that is God. Eternity future is something that we can almost imagine. We just take what is today, we take ourselves now, and we project it out into the future, and we can almost imagine an infinity of time that goes into the future. But eternity past is even harder. A never beginning is a deeper mystery than a never ending. Some of you may think my sermons will never end, but at least you can remember a time before I started and the life you enjoyed in those halcyon days. But God will never end. The sermon will, but God will never end. But even more glorious and transcendent, God never began. Isaiah 40 tells us, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his, re- and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Beside me there is no God. Paul says in 1 Timothy, He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen nor can see. And perhaps even in more mysterious and more cause for us to rejoice is that we were each in the mind of God before time and space and matter existed. And we were loved, and during that eternity past, until present and into eternity future, God's love for us individually, you and me, preceded time. Paul says in Ephesians 1, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption. And so God is self-existent uncreated, and therefore the creator. And God's self-existence extends to his self-sufficiency, and God's self-existence and eternal existence has bearing on us even in his choosing to love us before the foundation of the world. But let's take for granted that we understand that God being God is self-existent. What, what may be a bigger struggle is God's self-sufficiency. Our main text for today comes from Acts 17. Really, all of 17 is needed for context, but verses 22 to 25 are the heart of it. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is self-sufficient. So we need some context here. What, what is going on that Paul should make this speech? And if you go back a few verses and look at the start of chapter 17, you'd see that the Apostle Paul is in Athens waiting for Silas and Timothy to arrive. And Athens is the cultural, religious, and philosophical hub of the Greek Empire. And as Paul is walking around the city while he's waiting for his friends to arrive, he sees thousands of idols that were on every street and in every temple. And he also, at the same time, hears the debates of the philosophers and the sophists in the Areopagus, the market, who loved to stand in crowds and give arguments and listen to arguments about all the various new ideas. Acts 17.21 says, All the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And this market in Athens is still there. You can see it. This is the hill on which it stood. This is what it looked like at the time. City filled with idols, filled with philosophers, filled with academics and eggheads. And they all stood around all day long just talking about new ideas. And this is the scene that Paul enters into. And he sees that Athens is a factory for idol production and worship and philosophical thought. It's just—it's a city that's just churning out new idols and new philosophies. And, and both the idol worship and the philosophies are to the same purpose. The, the sheer dominance of the religious and philosophical industry in Athens, in all cultures for that matter, point to the singular need of mankind to arrive at some ultimate answer of why we exist, what purpose we have, and how to live. And this is what Athens was bent on, either through religion or through philosophy. And I'll risk a little time to cover both idolatry and philosophy here because the context is important. Paul tackles both idolatry and philosophy to explain God to these people, to explain why God needs to be who he is in order for them to have hope. And it is essential as he addresses idolatry and philosophy to say that this God and the self-sufficient God is good news. It's essential to the gospel, which he concludes his speech with. So first of all, idolatry, Paul starts out, and this is where I'm going to sketch in a little bit for time. Paul starts out saying, I see you have an idol here to the unknown God. And Paul says, I can tell you about that God. Let let me tell you two things that are going to be most important for people like you about this God. Paul chooses two things to tell them about them, about God in this speech. He says, God made the world and everything in it. And he does not live in temples made by man. He isn't served by human hands. He does not need anything from us. Two things. God is creator. Or you could say God was here before creation. God is self-existent. And the second thing is God is self-sufficient. Now why does Paul go there? Why, Why does Paul choose as he's preaching to these pagans to say this is the important thing you need to know about the unknown God? He's self-existent. He's creator. And he doesn't need you. He's self-sufficient. Because this is what, Paul says these two things because this is what makes idolatry and paganism foolish and sets God apart from all other religions, no matter how many hundreds or thousands of them there were in Athens. God is, Paul is displaying God as God has displayed himself to all pagan nations 
In Isaiah 46, God speaks through Isaiah and says, Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Those were idols, gods. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, they bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age. I am he. And to gray hairs, I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, and I will carry, and will save. Amen. God says, and Paul says, God is not like your idols. He's the one who serves. You don't serve him. Psalm 50 says this way, God is speaking. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows or be obedient to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So Paul says, you Athenians have carved out your idols out of wood and made them out of gold. You created them. You, they didn't create you. And you've built temples to keep the sun and the rain off of them. And you bring them food and drink and offer them service. You have to put them on an ox cart and carry them wherever they need to go. The God I proclaim to you is creator, not created. He does not ask us for food. The world is his. You don't carry him anywhere. He carries you. You don't create, carry, and serve God. God creates, carries, serves, and saves you. That's the difference. So he deals with the religious. He deals with the idolaters. And he says, I'm proclaiming to you a God that's totally different. And it has to do with him being self-existent and self-sufficient. But Paul goes on to say, he himself gives all, to all mankind, life and breath and everything. And then later he says, in him we live and move and have our being. Now why does he say it that way? Why does he say it like that? If we were to go back, he starts to address the philosophers. Luke notes in verse 18 that Paul's not just there by random chance. It was, he was there by invitation. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers invited Paul to come and speak to them. They were not part of the religious group. They were part of the philosophical thinkers, the deep thinkers, the smart guys. And so as Paul is giving his message, his speech, Paul quotes back to his listeners a basic philosophical question that had several centuries of debate behind it already without a successful answer. Why does matter exist? How is motion or energy possible? And why do we have life? In other words... In what do we live and move and have our being? And Paul says, in God we live and move and have our being. These, these Epicureans and Stoics were skeptics, and thus the debates and the search for new and novel things. Not just skeptical about religion, mind you. Epicureans and Stoics were skeptical responses to the foundations of philosophy. At this point, all of Western philosophical thought about the ultimate questions of a being in life had already been built on the foundations of people that came before the first century. So I'll just, this is the part i got to sketch in. I'd, I'd spend more time here, but real quick. You have to understand the context. Paramendes in 510 was studying in nature, and he came with this profound thought that whatever is, is. Well, that's brilliant. But what, but what he means is, whatever is, 
has actuality. It has no potential. It has come into full being. If there was still potential, then it could not be because it is not actual yet. It's philosophical. Bear with me. Heraclitus comes after him, and he says, but whatever is is changing. Nothing ever stays the same. He's the guy that famously said, you can only step into the same river once. Because once you step into the river, it's changed, and you've changed. We are all becoming. Everything is becoming. Even a rock at a microscopic level is eroding by wind or air or something or water to some degree. And so he said, whatever is, is changing. It's becoming. We're not human beings. We're human becomings. Socrates in 450 BC leads into Plato. Socrates and Plato basically said both are necessary. We need actuality and potentiality. And they built huge philosophical treaties on the necessity of both being and of changing. And then Aristotle came along and he built on his teacher Plato, realizing that they didn't have a final solution as to why things were the way they were. And Aristotle came to the conclusion that being and movement and life must all depend on an uncreated actor or what he called the unmoved mover, which must be the first cause. Something has to put all this in motion and keep it moving. It must be God. Well, the Epicureans and the Stoics, on the other hand, at this point now, in the first uh, century, this isn't Yeah, the first century, this is around 35, no, Athens, Paul's in Athens around 55 AD. The Epicureans and the Stoics came along and basically had said, we're never going to figure this out. We've read Paramendes, we've read Heraclitus, we've read Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. We don't think that there is an answer to these deep philosophical questions of the universe. And so both the Epicureans and the Stoics were skeptics philosophically and religiously, and they said, we just need to live to be happy. And they each took different paths. The Stoics took the path of virtue and integrity and building on a foundation that you might be remembered into the future. The Epicureans went the other way, and they said, let's just eat and drink and be merry. And so they were gluttons and drunkards and hedonists in every sense of the word. And Paul basically says to these philosophical skeptics in these two worldviews, you're both wrong. The pagans were almost right in their idolatry. Aristotle almost got there. There is one true God at the summit of both religion and philosophy. A God who is creator and sustainer and an unmoved mover of the cosmos in whom we live and move and have our being. The unmoved mover of Aristotle is who I proclaim. So Paul has these two audiences. He's got religious people. He's got philosophers and scientists. And he delivers this speech, and the two things he says is God is self-existent, he is the creator, and he doesn't need us. And this leads directly into the gospel call. Paul's gospel is, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. It's interesting he says that because... Their eyes are blind. They have to feel their way towards God. And yet he's actually not far from each one of us. Here the hope begins. For in him we live and move and have our being, and even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he is fixed today. 
on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so Paul goes directly from the self-existence and the self-sufficiency of God as an answer to idolatry and philosophy, and he leads them right into the gospel. And so we have to ask ourselves now, here we get to the application after all that context. Why are these attributes of God so important to the Christian gospel? Why do these things define for us how we live, why we live as we do as Christians, and why the gospel looks like it does and acts like it does? Why does it matter to our walk in the gospel? Well, there's three ways that it affects our worship and our walk with God, and then we'll talk about how it affects the gospel. First of all, the self-sufficiency of God affects our worship and our walk with God because God, by grace and gift, empowers every act of obedience. And here's where we can get mixed up if we don't get this right. If you start to think that God has been so good to me, I will now pay him back the service he is due for doing, being gracious to me. In other words, I owe God a debt of gratitude. I owe debt. God a debt of something, and so my Christian life is now paying back what I owe God. If you start to think about your Christian service that way, then you've misunderstood the self-sufficiency of God. Paul says it. God says it. You cannot serve God. He does not need your service. And if you try to pay God back, that gift that you think you owe him or that service you think is due, here's the important thing to understand. Every step of obedience you make intending to repay God for your salvation is a step made possible only by the self-sufficient God that is gifted to you and made possible your obedience by his grace. And so you are actually just in an attempt to pay back God, getting deeper and deeper into grace's debt. I'm not just making that up, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You, you cannot pay God back with service because if it is genuine gospel, Christian obedience, then it depends entirely on God and grace to be possible as much as every moment and life and breath of you depends on God. All you do in serving God is go deeper into the debt of grace. And so we need to, as Christians, understand that it is important that God is self-sufficient. He does not need us. And every act of service is not to repay him. Every act of service just gets us deeper into the debt of his grace because he makes it possible for us to serve him by his power. He will serve his own ends, even through me and you. And to be clear, that is a good thing. That is a glorious thing. To go deeper and deeper into the grace of God in our obedience is glory for him, and it is rejoicing and satisfaction and security for eternity for us. It is good to go deeper into the debt of God's grace every day. So it's impossible. 
that God can be anything other than self-sufficient, and it is good for us that he is because he empowers all of our acts of obedience, and we cannot repay it. If it were possible, if you could just imagine for a while that it were possible, secondly, then grace would suddenly become a business transaction, condemning us and diminishing God. It is impossible to repay God, but if it were somehow possible for us to see this as a transaction where we are actually paying God back for service, then it would nullify the grace of God, it would reduce God to an idol, and it would reduce us to slaves. Romans 4, 4 4-5 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You see, Acts 17 is a warning to us to not to try and serve God, and in Romans, Paul uses the word work. Don't try and work for God. If God accepted your work, then your righteousness is not a gift. It is something you earn like a paycheck, and that would be bad news for both us and for God because it would turn us into slaves trying to repay a debt that we could never repay, and it would turn God into a pagan deity who somehow requires or demands something from us that he lacks. As though he is unable to save us, Except if we meet criteria, he cannot satisfy. But because God is self-sufficient, if we get that knowledge of God right in our hearts and minds, then it is impossible for God to be counted like any other pagan deity. And it is impossible for us to be enslaved by self-righteous religion. And so God must be self-sufficient for grace to be true. And thirdly, it rightly places God's self-sufficiency, rightly places God as the only and eternal provider. 1 Peter 4 says, Whoever serves as the one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that everything, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, Peter says the same thing as Paul is saying. Peter says, As you serve, if it is true Christian gospel service, It is serving only in the strength that God has given you so that all the glory goes back to God and we receive none of it. He receives all the glory. Participation in the divine will and purpose is a gift we are given. It's not a service God requires. God is a father inviting his children to participate in his work, not because he needs us, but because we need him. To belong to him, to be nurtured by him, to grow in him, to have purpose with him. Everything about our Christian life is a gift of God because he is entirely self-existent and entirely self-sufficient and needs nothing from us and so that everything that we are is a gift. It's like me as a young boy helping my mother bake pies in her kitchen. Was I helping? I'm 100% certain that my mom could bake faster and easier without me. But she let me crack the eggs and fish out the shells and spill the flour and roll the dough and pick it up off the floor and set the oven timer. My mom gave me the gift of serving her even though she didn't need it. And everything that I brought for service in her baking was already given to me by her, not just the skills that she had taught me and was teaching me and the help that she gave me, but my very life and existence was from her. There was nothing I was bringing to the kitchen to help my mom that did not come from her. That's our God. That's our Father. There is nothing we bring to the kitchen of God's work that he did not give us. 
our very life, our very breath, our very being, every skill, every talent, every ability, the grace to do it, the power to do it, the wisdom to do it, it all comes from God. Or it could be a daughter helping her father build a doghouse in the garage. The tools are his, the skills are his, the instruction is his, her life is his, and yet he invites her into this work for her nurture, her joy, her belonging, her maturing, and ultimately, it's his glory that is seen in his daughter. That is why the self-sufficiency of God is not something optional. For us as Christians, we have to understand the self-existence and the self-sufficiency of God is critical to why he is different than every other religion and why he is at the summit of every philosophy and why we are secure in our adoption into his family because he is a God who can save us. Why is it important to the gospel and to our important and, and to our eternal salvation? Well, first of all, it's important to the gospel because God's self-sufficiency is bad news for the self-righteous. This is what threatened Paul, the Apostle Paul, in the early days of the church and made him hate Christianity. He was a very successful Pharisee. His salvation was secured by his work, Galatians 1 and Philippians 3. He was a very successful Pharisee. His whole identity hung on serving God with resolve and strength and rigor, serving God better than anyone else around him. This was his boast. This was his significant. I will be accepted by God because I am a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Hebrew of Hebrews. And then the gospel comes to the Apostle Paul as a Pharisee and with this message that God isn't served by human hands. God doesn't need anything. And that was bad news for Paul. That's bad news for all the self-righteous workers. God's self-sufficiency is at the heart of justification by faith and not works. It's as though Paul spent years training to win a 40K marathon only to discover that the final contest of life requires him to fly. And so the self-sufficiency of God God is important to the gospel because it eradicates any notion of self-righteousness. It eradicates any notion that we are going to work to qualify ourselves before God. It's bad news for the self-righteous. On the other hand, it's good news for the weak. If you are weak and you are helpless and sinful and you know that any good that you do, you need God's help to do, then God's self-sufficiency, it comes as the best news in the world. That God is the kind of God who cannot be served but instead loves to serve. That we do not save ourselves, that we do not carry ourselves, but he carries us. That we are unable to even try and save ourselves because we cannot pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We cannot grab our own hand and pull ourselves out of the quicksand or the whirlpool. Because God is self-existent and is outside of our existence, God is outside of the whirlpool because he is self-sufficient and stands on his own sufficiency, then he can reach in to our fallen creation and he is able to reach into that that does not contain him and rescue us. And if God was somehow dependent on creation or dependent on us or needed us for any part of this, then he would be in the whirlpool with us, he would be in the quicksand with us and unable to rescue And so this is good news to the weak. This is good news to those who need to be carried. The message of the Christian gospel is not help wanted. It's help available. Maybe you think the Apostle Paul, or maybe you think me. 
was making too much of a few verses in a speech made to pagans. So let's just go back to what Jesus said. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Remember what God said about his self-existency and his self-sufficiency at the beginning. He said, Israel, you're not going to carry me. I'm not going to come to you if I'm hungry. I'm the one who supplies. I'm the one who carries. I'm the one who saves. I have come to serve you. I am the God who serves. I'm not the God that demands service. Do we serve God? Absolutely we serve God. Does our service have really anything to do with us? Not even a little bit. Our service is simply God inviting us to participate as his children in a work and a will that is far greater than us, and he supplies everything, our very breath, in order to serve. And so the message this morning could be, don't serve God. <laughs> Which sounds weird, but it's right there in Scripture. We can't serve God. Let God serve you. And in serving you, then you participate in the work of salvation and the work of the gospel that is taking place in this world. The self-sufficiency of God leads to the service of God and the provision of Jesus for our salvation. His life given to ransom and to redeem and to rescue his people. That is the gospel. A self-sufficient God serving his people in salvation. Serving his people in everything. In life and breath and in having our being. And in him we live and move and have our eternal essence. That is why the self-existence and the self-sufficiency of God is not optional. It's absolutely who God is. It's absolutely something that we can glory and rejoice in because our eternity is secure, not in our work, not in our service, but in his. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this morning we get to remember in communion the service, that point in history when you willingly gave your son and your son willingly came to die and he served us on the cross he served to bear our sin to become a curse so that we might in exchange receive his righteousness father what an incredible moment of of thanksgiving of rejoicing and of meditation we enter into here now in communion we pray these things in christ's name amen